I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Machine Elf Radio. This week's episode continues my conversation with Greg Shaw from Stonehill College, where we talk about Platonism as a spiritual path in contemporary academia. Um, the inspiration for this was that uh, I have um, I did I did my undergraduate study in classics at Columbia. While I was there, I started to form an impression that um, that there are are people in academia who take Plato seriously as a sort of personal spiritual guide. And then I had the opportunity to to do a sort of uh, group guided reading project on Plotinus at, at Harvard with uh, Professor Charles Stang, uh, where we asked him this a little bit more directly. And he said, yes, there certainly are uh, academics who identify as Platonists. And so uh, uh, it's something that I'm very interested in, something that I'm interested in pursuing more on the show. And uh, Professor Sting put me in touch with uh, 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 with Greg Shaw to uh, to talk about this. And so that's what um, we're kind of breaking into this week. And it's something I'm really into, and uh, I- I'm hoping to really keep developing uh, in the weeks and months ahead. So I really enjoyed this uh, so much that I ended up editing out very little of it, and I'm breaking it up into uh, smaller pieces, so this has turned into part two in uh, a three-episode series, with the third one uh, soon to come. We live in a completely different culture than 4th, 5th century, uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th century of the Common Era, where you know people had a very active belief in or experience of uh, spiritual powers that they called gods or daimons or, you know, different spiritual entities. And in our culture, we pretty much closed the door to that imaginative um, experience. Um, as you are highly aware, um, the the dogma, the rules of our culture is that we're just um, material and there's nothing except for us. Uh, <laughs> and what this work allows us to do is to feel the autonomy of images that are not us. And, um, and that's a kind of analogous experience to, in the ancient world, how they could feel the autonomy of these spiritual presences, um, which they called daimons or gods. And... Um, <coughs> The the Platonist that I worked have worked with the most, his name is Iamblichus, mm-hmm. and he lived in the um, the third to the fourth early fourth century, and what he tried to do was to provide um, fellow Platonists um, ritual practices where they could integrate themselves once again into the larger body that they're in, the kind of the, the world body, um, nature. Um, Emerson would call it the world soul. Um, and he thought that you can't just think your way out uh, into that connection, that you actually, um, that our alienation from our larger body is more visceral than that, and that we need to have certain kinds of visceral expressions uh, that invite us back into our larger body. 
Um, so in some sense, he's been a Platonist that, that wasn't paid attention to because he didn't fit our caricature of Platonism, which is that it's just a purely intellectual tradition. And as an intellectual tradition, um, its goal was to always bring us out of this world and up into the world of the divine forms, which is reality, and to escape from our bodies and material world. That's how Platonism has pretty much been transmitted to us. Mm -hmm. And there were some Platonists who were inclined that way. But most, especially after Iamblichus in the 3rd century, thought that the goal of Platonism was not to get out of the body, but to be embodied in a divine way, resonant with all of the um, spiritual presences in the world, so that we could see our, our correspondence to all those presences and make sure that our connection with those presences or the spirits outside us is resonant with um, what we have within us that corresponds to them. And it's finding that meeting ground uh, between the presence in me and the presence in the world that was the discipline of Iamblichus's school. Um, and typically, the way in which that was done was through rituals, uh, that rituals provided that kind of middle ground between what's in me and what's in the world, mm -hmm. what's outside me. Um, and effectively, uh, you know, it starts with very basic physical kinds of rituals because our, mm. our alienation from the whole is pretty visceral and basic. Um, and so we need to honor that visceral and basic alienation and then once we've honored that and feel connected that way, um, then we progressively use other kinds of symbolic modes to integrate ourselves into what uh, Emerson calls uh, the oversoul, what the Platonists called the world soul. Um, and it even goes up to using mathematical images uh, to visualize geometric shapes and, and mathematics themselves as a way to integrate us into the numbers um, of the cosmos. Because for Platonists, they thought the cosmos was a numerical being, a kind of uh, a living symphony, you could say. Hmm. And, and that the, the goal of their tradition was to bring ourselves back into harmony with that music that the birth process, um, because it's such a traumatic process, process tended to throw us out of that's straight plato that comes right out of the timaeus uh, plato says that when we're born the experience of birth is so traumatic that um the resonance that we have with the world soul which we're originally designed in resonance with and correspondence with we lose it through the trauma of birth and the goal of platonic education is to recover that alignment of ourselves with the world soul you can see the the orders of the world soul in in the stars according to plato and those stars can actually be measured and numbered and that's the pythagorean dimension of platonism it's all in perfect kind of um correspondence that's why i use the metaphor of a symphony the cosmos is a divine being 
it manifests itself in this kind of measured musical way. We ourselves are part of that, um, you could call it a theophany, a divine showing. But in the birth, in our birth into bodies, we lose our connection with it. And Plato says very plainly that the purpose of, of his education is not to learn anything new, but to recover what we lost when, when we went through the trauma of birth. That's why it's, he calls it recollection. We recover what we've lost. Um, and that's the goal of all Platonists. So uh, with Iamblichus, he thought that possibly the tradition was getting a, bit, a little bit overly intellectualized and a little too heady. And that he, he thought that by doing that, we're, we're sort of fooling ourselves into thinking that we might be recovering something, but we're just playing mind games instead of really viscerally recovering this divine presence right here in our bodies. So in this sense, Iamblichus represents what I would call a kind of a, a non-dual emphasis in, in Platonism, uh, which he believed was the real tradition. Uh, people like Pythagoras were perceived to be uh, incarnations of, of, di- of divinity. Um, and they had a whole different concept of it, divinity than we do after centuries and centuries of, of you know, Christian imagination where God's up there and not down here. And um, it's impossible to imagine anybody being God except for Jesus. Um, the Platonists weren't like that at all. They thought that everybody was supposed to become an incarnation of the divine by waking up to their correspondences with the world soul. But it takes a lot of work, and um, that's what his school was all about, as I understand it. So can I ask you about like what uh, did the state look like, or did, is this something that Plato gets into, what the state looked like before we entered these bodies, um, what our misalignment with the world soul looks like when yeah. we're experiencing alienation and what it looks like once you're reintegrated but still in a body. Right. Well, um, right. Before we were born, all of the, call them num- numerical ratios in us, are in perfect correspondence with the numerical ratios of the world soul. So we're kind of like, a miniature manifestations of everything, and we're in perfect resonance with it, okay? When we're born, those, those ratios, which are visualized by Plato as circles in us, and those circles correspond to the circles of the planets from the moon, Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn, those are how you can see them in the heavens, that's, those are the circles of the world soul, okay? Mm-hmm. So it's, we can look up in the sky and see that. The, the same circles are in us, he says. But when we're born, they fall out of alignment. We see that perfect alignment in the heavens, but in our own case, the circles get kind of twisted. It's sort of like a scrambled rainbow. Um, and we're discordant. We're out of sync. Um, and we develop entire kind of personalities based on that, those imbalances. So that's why the first step in the Platonic school is to unlearn our emotional and mental habits. 
that we've developed since birth. And Socrates represents the person who helps you unlearn it. <laughs> In that um, the, the typical result of a, of a discussion with Socrates is the person says, oh, I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. Or, and it's very disturbing. You, you get stripped of what you think you know. And since what we think we know is really based on a misconception of who we are, we get stripped down to nothing, ultimately. And it's out of that nothing that we can then be begin to recover our real body, our real um, alignment with the universe, and that we can start to wake up, to use the image from your dream, wake up to our real body, um, our our incarnation of this divine order in our lives. That's that's the goal. So the first step is a kind of catharsis, which is very unappealing because it can be humiliating. But then the second step is once you've cleansed yourself to some degree, you can start to wake up to um, this depth that we have in us, this resonance, this alignment with the world soul. And a picture for that is... Um, if you look at, at some of these sketches that, um, or drawings of people like Robert Flood, uh, I think he's a 16th century kind of esotericist, um, they have pictures of the microcosm, which is the human soul, in perfect alignment with the macrocosm, which is the world soul. And so this theme of aligning the microcosm the small world, your individual soul, with the macrocosm, the big world, the world soul, has been a theme through Western tradition from the time of Plato. And um, the goal is, is to uh, achieve that realignment of the micro with the macro. And that's how it could be visualized, you could say. And so can I ask what, uh, <clears throat> like, a the people who are practicing uh, this this uh, uh, you know, sort of conscious uh, uh, interaction with Plato as, as a sort of spiritual guide, um, mm -hmm. are, what is what is uh, your relationship with the texts? Like, uh, uh, does the yeah. Timaeus itself play an important role? Or uh, uh, yes, you're right. A good question. Um, after Iamblichus emphasized that. Um, that we need to actually do more than just think about it, but we actually have to open ourselves up in ourselves to a deeper place of engaging this awakening process, then that would mean that the reading of the Timaeus, the study of the Timaeus, is not just getting information and thinking about it, but it's actually a ritual practice. That the study itself is a ritual practice, not unlike uh, in the Jewish tradition with the study of the Talmud or, or the Torah. Ritual of reading and studying the Torah is a kind of ritual practice. And it's, it's not just for information, it's, it's to be taken to a deeper level of awareness. It's the same with these later Platonists. So when they would study these texts, like the Timaeus or the Philebus or any of the other texts, they understood that the purpose of these texts was to wake them up, to initiate them into their own divinity. That's what they understood. And, and so Iamblichus set up the reading of the text, beginning with um, texts that were designed to, 
to strip us of what we think we know. So they would be the cathartic texts. And the last texts you would read would be um, texts that were designed to wake us up to who we really are. But you have to be cleansed before you can wake up. Um, and uh, yeah, reading these texts was their spiritual practice. And they wrote commentaries on these texts. That's their way to engage them, their way to exercise their own participation in this ongoing, you could say, cultural expression of this creative and divine mind that has manifested this world. They really felt as if they were part of of the mind that creates the universe. And so today, among certain people who study uh, Platonic writings, there are many of us who who feel a taste of that, or 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 can smell the aroma of that, and and it's a stimulating thing that many of us just sort of feel in secret because it's, you don't go into an academic meeting and say, you know, I, I got in tune with the divine mind and and this is what I've come up with because they would laugh you out of the room or they would just say, oh, you're just you know, egotistically inflated. And the fact is, you might be egotistically inflated. It's, there's, no, there's no guarantees that you're not going to blow it. But I think that there are people, and I would count myself among them, that have felt opened up to a deeper kind of reality that we know is beautiful, real, and connected to who we are in our core. And we've, we've experienced that through these Platonic texts, and through the writings of the later Platonists and their commentaries on those texts. Proclus is an amazing a commentator. Uh-huh. Damascius is an amazing commentator. Uh-huh. Iamblichus uh, set up the parameters for how to do it. Um, Plotinus um, was, was basically um, a commentator on the Platonic texts, and he, he would kind of go into rapturous states and just start to communicate them to the people around him. And he would draw them into those rapturous states through himself, which is why he had such a, um, an impact. Um, my own sense is that the later Platonists began to feel that um, Plotinus's interiorizing of, of the process was um, began to, to cut us off from the world around us and so it was a little bit, it, it was perceived by Iamblichus and the later Platonists that Plotinus was a little bit of an escapist who was trying to get out of the world, whereas they, they thought that actually the soul is down here in the world and should be. So there are even differences among the Platonists. I think well, I over-answered that last question. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful, and uh, uh, I'm enjoying this immensely. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, do you, do you really have to go into a PhD program in classics to really get into this? Because uh, no, yeah, no, no, you don't. I do think it helps to know Greek. Yeah, because otherwise you have to depend on people who are translating the work, and that means you have to depend on their own preconceptions about what the Greek means. And if you don't know the Greek, you can't sort of, you know, check on the validity of their translations and sometimes their translations are a little skewed. Yeah. And and it just helps a bit. So learning Greek is is valuable. Mm-hmm. 
because they all wrote in Greek. Um, so in that sense, it's valuable to know Greek language. But I know a man in who lives in New York City. He's an independent scholar. He, I'm, I'm sure he got a degree, maybe an MA or something, but he's not part of an academic institution. And he's as, as fine a platonic thinker as um, I know of. Um, his name is Edward Butler, and he, he writes great articles. Another friend of mine is not in the academy, and he's not in the academy because uh, he finds the academic games to be distasteful, mm-hmm. if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, his name um, is Peter Kingsley, and oh, he yeah. knows Greek, and he, he writes from his own engagement with this material. Um, he's more interested in the pre-Socratics and their way of, of revealing this material. But... Um, He's very familiar with, with, with this tradition. He has a little bit more critical view of Plato. He, his view is that Plato tended to over-intellectualize things, period. And, and so he prefers, uh, he definitely prefers what Iamblichus does in terms of bringing it down into the body. Um, but he thinks the pre-Socratics did that too. So there are people who are outside of the academy who are deeply engaged with this material. And there's a group in England too, um, they, they have a group called the Prometheus Trust, and they, they work on this material regularly and have a yearly conference. Um, My strong feeling is that the technology is getting to a point, especially with like uh, tools online like Perseus, uh, yes. that it's getting to a point where if you know how to read Greek and if you can just wrap your head around the basic grammar rules, like uh, you can really start to engage with the primary texts uh, uh, Definitely. In, in, a, in a really meaningful way without necessarily having to uh, be someone who devoted your life to it. Oh, I completely agree with you. And it also helps, in addition to having access online to the Greek texts, is to have friends oh, yeah. who, who are also interested in this material with whom you can have free-flowing, open-ended discussions about this stuff. And I, I have um, one in particular who happens, fortunately, he lives in Cambridge, up in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. And I visit with him periodically. And... Um, Every time we meet, we dive into the questions, you know, which is all about the questions of, okay, how does this divine mind incarnate itself into a human body? That's one thing to talk about that in the abstract. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to be looking in a, at another person and feeling as if it's happening right now, right here. Hey. Mm-hmm.